want to ask you to stand. We're going to continue our worship time this morning. And we're going to ask the Lord to open up the heavens. Because we want to see Him in this place today. So let's sing, open up the heavens, and invite Christ into this place. We waited for this day, we're gathered in your name, calling out to you. Your glory like a fire, awakening desire, will burn our hearts with truth. You're the reason we're here, you're the reason we're singing, let's sing it. Open up the heavens, we want to see you. Open up the floodgates, a mighty river flowing from your heart, feeling every part of our praise. Your presence in this place, your glory on our face. We're looking to the sky Descending like a cloud You're standing with us now Lord, unveil our eyes You're the reason we're here You're the reason we're singing Open up the heavens We want to see Open up the floodgates, a mighty river flowing from your heart, feeling every part of our praise. Open up the heavens, we want to see you. Open up the floodgates, a mighty river flowing from your heart, feeling every part of our Show us, show us your glory, Lord. Show us, show us your glory. Show us, show us your power. Show us, show us your glory, Lord. We won't see you.
Well, good, mo- good morning, everybody. How y'all doing today? Good to see y'all. My name is Trey, and I am a citizen of heaven because of Jesus Christ, only because of Jesus. And our church exists to spread his kingdom across the street and around the world. And that is why we do what we do. We want to equip the saints for the work of ministry. We have a goal that we set to help keep us focused on that. We want to share the gospel a million times in the next 10 years as a faith family. Now, we cannot control who responds or how they respond. That's up to God. But we can control how often we share the good news. And that's why, that's why we have that goal. That's why we do what we do. I want to introduce you to my friend Hannah. Hannah, um, how long have you been seriously following the Lord? In August, it'll be two years. Okay, so what does it look like for you? How, how, how has it been for you sharing the gospel over the years, last year and almost two years? Um, the first, like the first part of my walk, or the first like several months, I really didn't share the gospel. I just thought like sharing about my faith on social media would suffice, and if somebody asked me, I would tell them about it, and that was enough. Um, but it wasn't really until I got to Longview Point and got in a connect group um, and went through our starting point class and things like that where I was like, okay, this is common knowledge, it's common language to share the gospel with people just kind of all the time. And we would make goals and talk about accountability and things like that. So when people are constantly asking, like, you're, if you're sharing the gospel, you realize, like, oh, this is something that I need to do. And so that's kind of when I started doing it, I guess, about a year ago. Okay, so a little plug for connect groups, you know, a little encouragement and accountability. And accountability is good. We need that. But, but what is it that really compels you to go and tell people about Jesus? I think um, when you see God do the things that he promises that he's going to do, like he says that he's going to save people if we share, um, and thinking about like if nobody had shared the gospel with me, I would not be saved. I would not be here. I would not be in heaven with all of you. So that really compels me more to know like the gospel is going to do what God said it's going to do. And even there was somebody in our church who shared the gospel with me when I was in college and came in the calf and totally made fun of him. Me and my friends probably made him feel so small. And I got to go to him later and be like, Hey, I actually did come to faith in Christ. And this is the fruit of your ministry. So, amen. That's great. That's great. So, so Hannah, where do you find opportunities to share with people? I think you have to make them a lot of times. You can't really just wait for like God. Sometimes God does send you the perfect ones, but um, whether it's like online or it's a client or just in a store, uh, most of the time if you talk to people, especially in Mississippi, they're going to talk to you and they'll talk to you for as long as you'll talk to them most of the time. So I think if <laughs> I think if you just make them, make opportunities and understanding like people have real souls, you know, and they're really going to go somewhere and like it's like on us, like if we know it, then why would not we not share it? So, so testing the waters, just getting into conversations, keeping that eternal perspective. How do you transition to a gospel, you know, conversation? I think it's a kind of a case by case basis. There are some people who will be really open with you and they'll come right out and talk about their spiritual like well-being or whatever, and you can immediately start sharing the gospel. There are some people who are going to be really reserved, and so I'll say, okay, well, here's my number. Would you want to, like, get coffee later? Um, so I think it depends on the person that you're talking to, whether you know them, whether it's a stranger. Um, but I think no matter what, you can always find an avenue. Even if you're talking about something stupid, you can just be like, yeah, I prayed for this the other day, and God granted it. You know, I think you can always make that entrance. So just keeping that, that focus on eternity. 
All right, so the evangelism team here, we go out on, on Wednesdays and on Saturdays, and there's a, there's a group on GroupMe, and they're constantly talking about when we're going out or, hey, got to share the gospel with somebody, um, you know, please pray for this individual. And, and one night, it's like 10 o'clock at night, you get a, get a ding on there, and it's Hannah saying, hey, we're with, uh, I, she didn't say we, she said, I'm with this guy on the side of the road uh, helping him with his car, please pray. I'm like, okay. And, <laughs> Some of the dads on the group are like, praying for safety, praying for death, be careful. You know, later we found out she wasn't alone, and this guy was with his family, so it wasn't quite as, as dubious. But uh, <laughs> is it ever scary? Yes. I, I mean, I think it's scary every time. Um, no, like, no matter if you're sharing with somebody that you really know, if it's a stranger. Um, in the last service I talked about, my, I shared with a teacher that I had from English in high school, and just like the most intimidating lady you've ever met, and she scared me in high school. She still scares me now. Like, I would do whatever she said. And so I think even um, sharing with her the entire time, I was absolutely terrified. I got to share my story with her in the gospel, and I knew she wasn't going to be receptive. Um, she's very openly atheist, and it was very, very hard, and it was very, very scary. But I was, like, on cloud nine afterwards because I knew that she heard the gospel. I knew that I had done what I, was, what I needed to do. Um, but I think you just... You just have to do it scared. Like, you can't really think about whether or not it's going to be scary because it, it just will be. Well, you know, if we're scared, that gives us a chance to just exercise faith, right? You know, I'm scared, but if we're going to trust God, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's a power of salvation for all who believe. Let's pray and just ask God to, to, to help us be good stewards of the gospel. Father, we bow before you today, praising you as God Almighty. Thanking you, Lord, for the testimony of a risen Savior, thanking you for the power of the gospel in our own lives, God, and, and for those who have yet to come to know you. Lord, please use us, God. Please help us to love you more than anything, to treasure you more than anything, to worship you, to live our lives for your glory. And as we do, God, would you use us to draw people to yourself from across the street and around the world. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand. We're going to continue our worship. Don't you think about what Jesus Christ did for you. He died on a cross. And as we sing this song, just sing it in a way to thank Jesus for what he did. He became sin who knew no sin. We might become his righteousness. He humbled himself and carried the cross. Love so Yeah. 
Every heart 
this place and God that everything that's done here today will magnify and glorify you we pray for every word that's spoken that God you will open our hearts and God help us Lord receive your message that you have for us today and God that we will just Lord just glorify in you and God that you will receive the praise and the glory for everything that we do God we ask that you forgive us of any sin and God just bless this day and let it be all about you and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to the book of Hebrews, chapter number 3. Hebrews, chapter 3. We have observed thus far in our study in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is a better revelation of the Father than the Old Testament in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 1. We discussed at some length Jesus' superiority to the angels in what remained of chapter 1 and in chapter 2. This morning in chapter 3, we're going to give consideration to the reality that Jesus is better than Moses and all that that intends. That may be a bigger, a broader topic than what is readily appreciated this morning, but hopefully we can lay hold of something of the significance of that statement in the time that we have together. Hebrews chapter 3, we're going to read that chapter in its entirety. If you've found your way there, I want to invite you to stand with me out of respect and honor for the reading of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, the scripture says, Therefore, holy brothers and companions in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was in all God's household. For Jesus is considered worthy of more glory than Moses. 
just as the builder has more honor than the house. Now every house is built by someone, but the one who built everything is God. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's household as a testimony to what would be said in the future. But Christ was faithful as a son over his household. And we are that household if we hold on to the courage and the confidence of our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts, and they've not known my ways. So I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. Watch out, brothers, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that departs from the living God. But encourage each other daily while it is still called today, so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. For we have become companions of the Messiah if we hold firmly until the end the reality that we had at the start. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who heard and rebelled? Wasn't it really all who came out of Egypt under Moses? And who was he provoked with for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And who did he swear to that they would not enter his rest if not those who disobeyed? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. To say that Jesus is better than Moses is a fairly non-controversial statement in our setting. But to say that Jesus is better than Moses in a first century Jewish context is scandalous to say the very least. It's difficult for us to understand just how highly esteemed Moses was within the old covenant system because we don't have good points of reference. It's kind of like a few years ago I was watching a football game with my boys that featured Tom Brady and Peyton Manning. And I was trying to explain to both of them that the greatest quarterback that ever lived or played American football was Joe Montana, who also happened to play in the world's greatest generation, the 1980s, world's greatest decade, rather, the 1980s, right? They, they could not understand or comprehend that because they did not have good points of reference for understanding that. They had not seen it in action. They had not been a part of the craze. They had not played Super Tecmo Bowl on the old Nintendo system. They just could not know or understand the significance of his career. Sort of the same kind of thing with Moses. It's difficult for us to understand or appreciate how highly regarded Moses was within that system. But consider with me for just a moment Moses' experience, his resume, his background. It was through Moses that God inspired the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. More of the writing of the Bible is assigned to Mosaic authorship than any other author from Genesis to Revelation. Even before Moses was old enough to be aware of God's work in his life, God was at work in his life. He's hidden among the reeds of the Nile River and found there, dispatched from the reeds of the Nile by Pharaoh's daughter and was raised in the court of Pharaoh, providentially spared from death in his infancy. It was Moses that would be called and commissioned by God to go before Pharaoh 
and to charge that he would let the people of God go, that they might worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob with freedom. It was through Moses that God worked to perform many mighty miracles, impressive before Pharaoh and before the Egyptian people. It was through Moses that those plagues were brought against the nation of Egypt, the greatest nation of all civilized nations in its time. It was through Moses that a staff was turned to a serpent, a serpent to a staff, water turned to blood, and blood turned to water. It was through Moses that some of God's greatest miracles were ultimately performed. It was Moses that stood at the front of the people of Israel as they made their way out of the land of Egypt there on the shores of the Red Sea. It was before Moses at the rising of his staff that the sea would be parted and the children of Israel would cross over on dry ground. It was Moses that stood between the judgment of God coming as a tidal wave against the people of Israel, made intercession for the nation, and it was at Moses' intercession that the judgment of God against them would relent. It was Moses who led the children of Israel out of their bondage and on that 40-year period of wandering in the wilderness provoked by their rebellion. It was through Moses, or at least under the supervision of Moses, that God would provide for the material needs of the nation of Israel with manna from heaven, literally bread from heaven. It was under the supervision of Moses that God would provide quail when they became uh, weary with the manna from heaven. God provided meat in the form of quail by wind under the supervision of Moses, and it was at the striking of Moses' staff on the rock that the children of Israel drank water freely from a rock of all things. It was Moses who ascended Mount Sinai to receive the written words of God. It was Moses whose countenance was changed by this encounter with God, so much so that he need wear a veil to be in close proximity to the children of Israel, awaiting his presence at the foot of Sinai. It was Moses who was afforded the great privilege of seeing what the scripture calls the backward parts of God's great glory hidden away in the cleft of the rock. It was Moses. It was Moses. And yet what the Bible makes abundantly clear here in Hebrews chapter 3 is that Jesus is superior even to Moses. It isn't that here we're finding fault with Moses, although we might find areas of Moses' life with which to find fault. It is that Jesus is just better than everything and everyone. Now remember here that we're reading a book that was originally written to a first century Jewish audience. And they're being called away from the old covenant religious practice they were so accustomed to now into the new covenant as they came to faith in Jesus. Now consider for a moment all that that intends for them. Not only are they being called from one manner or, or expression of religious practice into another, but everything about their life is being changed. Their whole social and cultural experience had been shaped by their commitment to the old covenant. Every, every family get-together was oriented around the prescriptions or instructions of the Old Covenant. Every holiday get-together 
had value assigned to it by virtue of its place in the law of Moses. Even the meal that they would enjoy together was prescribed for them by the dietary restrictions of the old covenant of Moses. Now called to faith in Jesus, everything about their life, not just their religious life, but their social life, everything about their culture was now to be rejected in favor of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it's no wonder that the constant refrain of Hebrews is to persevere. Do not drift away. Because we tend toward the familiar, right? And we've been called away from everything that we've known or become accustomed to socially and culturally and even religiously. There's an enticement to go back to our old ways. Well, we can sort of look back through history and appreciate the significance of this great conversion that takes place, this upheaval in the lives of first century Hebrew Christians being called away from their culture, from their social interactions, from their religious practice, everything about their lives being radically transformed by the gospel. But when you get down to brass tacks, this ought to be a shared experience. Everything about our culture Everything about our social interactions, everything about our religious understanding ought to be shaped by the new covenant, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ. All of our interactions, all of our interaction with the culture, all of our interactions socially, all of our expressions of religious practice ought to be bound up in honor to Jesus Christ who bled and died for our sin, who rose again that we might have everlasting life. Although it is a somewhat strained experience for first century Hebrew believers, it ought to be an experience that resonates with us because we too have been called away from a culture, away from certain social interactions, away from a former way of life. And we too are fighting against, we are laboring against this tendency to revert back to former ways and to persevere in Jesus. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers and companions in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, in its context, this is a verse that's stated, again, to encourage or embolden our perseverance in the faith, that we be kept, that we be steadfast in the gospel. And the very straightforward commandment issued in this verse, it's just two words, consider Jesus. It's not the kind of thing that typically appeals to the Western mind, right? Like we want action items. I like lists of things to do and checking things off of my list of things to do makes me feel satisfied and fulfilled and even accomplished in the day. I have confessed as much in weeks past before you as a congregation. I like that sort of thing. And we tend to read the Bible that way, and we tend to hear sermons that way. We're listening for, we're looking for action items, lists of things to do. And we likewise feel accomplished and fulfilled and satisfied as we're able to check those things off. We feel as though we've done some sense of, of duty. We've, we've done something to honor, honor the Lord. Perhaps somehow bound up in that understanding is the expectation that we have won or merited some favor with God. 
But here, all we're required to do, and I think the secret to perseverance, the secret to standing fast, the secret to lasting long, the secret to finishing the race well, is to consider Jesus. No action item, no list, no, no things to do. Meditate deeply on the person and work of Jesus Christ. When, when you are just on the verge of crumbling under the weight of temptation and giving in to great sin, think of Jesus. You'll either think of Jesus or you'll think of sin, but you won't think of both simultaneously. You'll either stop thinking about Jesus or you'll stop thinking about sin. When the Apostle Paul says in the Corinthian correspondence that we are to bring every thought captive to obedience to Christ, that, that's not just some labor of duty. That's key. It's essential to who we are in persevering in Christ. If you're wrestling with issues of security, if you don't feel well secured, assured in your salvation, the answer is not go do something. The answer is be still and know that he is God. Consider Jesus. Meditate on all that he's done for the salvation of our soul, how he bled and died. Meditate on his lordship over our life, his absolute sovereignty, his immeasurable mercy, his amazing grace. Meditate. Consider Jesus. Look at verse 2. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was in all God's household. For Jesus is considered worthy of more glory than Moses, just as the builder has more honor than the house. Now every house is built by someone, but the one who built everything is God. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's household, as a testimony to what would be said in the future. But Christ was faithful as a son over his household. And we are that household if we hold on to the courage and confidence of our hope. Jesus is worthy of more glory than Moses. For the same reason, the builder of the house is worthy of more honor than the house itself. Here the Bible says Moses was faithful as a servant in the house. He was a noble and faithful servant who was at work in the house, as the metaphor here goes. But Jesus is the builder of the house. That is, Jesus is God who built the house, the creator of all things. And although he would condescend, he would lay aside the glories and the riches of heaven for a season that he might abide in the house, that he might lay down his life in the house, that he might shed his blood and take up his flesh after death yet again in the house. He is deserving. He is worthy of far greater glory than Moses ever imagined. Jesus is the son who rules over the house at the same time the God who built the house. Moses is a mere servant in the house. Now packaged in all of this, remember again, first century Jewish audience. Re remember that and packaged in any conversation, especially in the New Testament, that we have about Moses, we have to have a conversation about obedience to the law of Moses. So to say the books of Moses or to, in, to e evoke the name of Moses 
was to communicate something about an obligation that we bear to keep the law of Moses. When you talk about Moses, you're talking about adherence, obedience to the commands of God given through Moses. One of several things that is really stressed in these verses, in my estimation, is that Jesus has done for us what Moses could not. If, if there's a contemporary mentality that might be paralleled to the experience behind Hebrews chapter 3, it would be that of legalism. The idea that if we do certain things, if we uphold certain values, if we go through certain motions, if we adhere to certain commands, then we win the favor of God some way. Brothers and sisters, that was not the reality in Moses' day. And it's certainly not the reality in ours. If anything is abundantly clear in Hebrews chapter 3, it is that Jesus has done for us what Moses simply could not. And I would remind you morning, this morning that Jesus is still doing for his people what Moses could not. Your acts of obedience, no matter how, how great you may have determined them to be, are meager, are measly, are small, are insignificant before the face of our perfectly righteous God. And they cannot win for you favor from God. But the works of Jesus, but the works of Jesus not only can win favor from God, they have won favor from God. And that favor is ours to enjoy by faith in Jesus. Not only does Jesus enjoy a different status in that he is son and Moses' servant, a different position in that he is Lord over the house as a son, not just servant in the house. What Jesus has done for us, Moses could have never dreamed of achieving in his own strength. Jesus has truly done for us what we could not do for ourselves. What religious adherents could not do under the old covenant, Jesus has done in absolute perfection. And we might broaden the application of this principle. No matter what religious background you come from, whether it be a neatly spelled out religion like Judaism under the old covenant, or just a secularism that's customary in the Western world. Jesus has done for us what your religion cannot do. You can determine in your own imagination what your religion ought to look like, and that's what most people do in the Western world today. We take bits and pieces of what we like, we conjure up in our imagination an acceptable religious practice, we judge ourselves as better than others on the basis of our standard, a standard that is, although imagined in ourself, not lived up to by ourselves. And within that religious system, we determine ourselves to be right. What you have assumed your religion could do, it simply cannot, but Jesus can. And he's promised that he would through the shedding of his blood and the resurrection of his once dead body is the assurance of the truthfulness of what Jesus has promised in his word. Now, when your self-styled religion gets a resurrected savior to attest to its truthfulness, we'll all sign on. But until that time, Jesus enjoys a unique status and that he has laid down his life and taken it up again as a testament to the truthfulness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What Jesus has done for us, no one else can do. He is unique in and of himself. 
Whatever you have assigned preeminence in your life, Jesus Christ is better. Now look at the last sentence of verse number six. Do you see it there? And we are that household if we hold on to the courage and the confidence of our hope. Now I'm going to say more about this in just a moment. It's directly connected to verse number 14, which we'll get to moments from now. But it's sufficient for now to point out that you can have confidence in your salvation, the assurance of, sal of your salvation in so much as you hold on to the courage and the confidence of our hope in the gospel. Look to verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts, and they've not known my ways. So I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. Now, what the author of Hebrews has done here, again, to a first century Hebrew audience, is to pull an illustration of the point that he's pressing from their very own history. He's quoting here Psalm 95. If you've been marking down as we've read along through the book of Hebrews where these Old Testament quotations come from, you have probably observed that the author of Hebrews is a big fan of the book of Psalms. And most of the time when there is a quote given in the book of Hebrews, we do ourselves well to go and find that quote in the Old Testament and understand it in its context. Often the fuller context of the quote is imported to the New Testament text. And so we have a better fuller understanding of what's being communicated when we see it in its original context and then make certain observations about it in this newly applied context. But that's not the way it works here in Hebrews chapter 3. In fact, the context of Hebrews 3 is much the same as it was in Psalm 95. It's in Psalm 95 that God explains that we are the people of his pasture. We are due him great worship and praise. There is some reflection on the fact that he's the creator of all things deserving of our worship. And then a word of warning that we must hasten to him, to make much of him, to worship him. We might say in spirit and in truth today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in times past, but make much of the God who has loved us and saved us and redeemed us. And we might reflect from this side of the cross, make much of the one who sent forth his only son. He draws an illustration from their very own history. And it's an incredibly relevant illustration, not just for first century Hebrew Christians, but for 21st century Bible Belt Christians as well. Here we have this discussion. Don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works for 40 years. They saw his works for 40 years, yes, yet they tested and tried God and they provoked the wrath of God against them in his anger. Therefore, judgment was decreed against that generation for that 40-year period of time. Now, within the congregation who would have received the book of Hebrews first. There were true believers. And then there were those who had been in proximity to the work of God in the church, 
who had perhaps paid some lip service to the confessions or the doctrines of the church, but had themselves yet to be touched by the power of the gospel of that church, and therefore were on the cusp of reverting back to their old ways. That's what we do. We mentioned that a moment ago. Remember when the children of Israel were coming out under the leadership of Moses? Every time it got bad, what did they say? We should have just stayed in Egypt. There's always a tendency to revert back to our slavish ways. They would rather go back to slavery than endure many of the experiences they encountered along the way in their wilderness wanderings and the conquest of the promised land. And you and I, brothers and sisters, are no different. Sometimes I get in conversations about the good old days, and here's what I've noticed. We all remember the good old days a lot better than they were in reality. I don't know whether you know this or not, but the good old days were often not so good after all. And our tendency is to revert back to what we're most comfortable with, what we're most familiar with. Now, for that generation that perished in the wilderness, they had been closer to more power, to more miracle power from God than perhaps any generation in the history of humanity. Sometimes people think that the Bible is just a long story about a lot of miracles, but that could not be further from the truth. In fact, you can confine the periods of history in which God was working in miraculous ways to really three periods. Moses and Joshua, Elijah and Elisha, Jesus and the apostles. That's it. That's not a lot of miracle working power when you consider the great scope of time covered in the history of the Bible. Most of the time, God is at work through regular people in regular ways, much like our regular experience. Sometimes people look around and they don't see these great acts of, of power, these great miracles as they're described in the scripture and wonder where God is. He's as present as he's ever been, working the way he ordinarily works in the lives of men and women and boys and girls. They had been close to that. When the Red Sea parted, they were there. They crossed over on dry ground, kicking seashells all the way. Almost couldn't say it. Did you catch that? They had eaten bread from heaven. They had drank water from the rock. They had observed, they had witnessed the plagues, not to mention the Passover itself. They saw day by day a cloud that provided them with shade and direction, and by night a pillar of fire that provided for their protection. They had been in such proximity to the power, the redeeming and saving power of God, but had yet themselves to be touched by that saving power. And here's why that message and this quotation is so relevant to the church today. Because it seems in my estimation that the most fertile ground for gospel advancement is not out there in the world around us, but on the rolls of so many Baptist churches. Where there are people who have been in such close proximity to the work of God. They've said the right things. They've participated in the right activities. They've witnessed God work and move powerfully in the lives of others, but have yet themselves been touched by the saving power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And the real potency of the quote itself today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. The potency is in the reality that for those who have been in such close proximity, who have for the longest periods witnessed God work in such powerful ways, are often the most reluctant to bow the knee in humility and call the name of Jesus for the salvation of their soul. Today, the Bible says, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers tested me. They'd seen my works for 40 years. God says, I was provoked with that generation, saying they always go astray in their hearts and they've not known my ways. So I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. God is not obligated to continue in the pursuit of your soul. It is not that you have the rest of your earthly days to make right with God. You have the season during which God is pleased to work with your foolish self. If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the day of rebellion. But today, 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 bow the knee and humbly confess the lordship of Jesus over your life. The word spoken in verse 12 is appropriate and directly related to the quote that's given in verses 8, and 8 through 11. Watch out. Watch out, brothers, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that departs from the living God. Watch out so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that departs from the living God. There's so much conversation about deconstructing faith today if you're following that discussion in social media. If you are, God bless you. If you're not, may your tribe increase. But I, I would just like to say there are no former Christians. There are just people who never were truly Christians in the first place, who, like the nation of Israel, might have been up close to the work of God, but were never truly touched by the saving power of God. Watch out, brothers. He's saying this to a gathering of, of presumed believers. He's saying, watch out, brothers, watch out. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, and you depart from the living God. Be careful. In verse 13, but encourage each other daily while it's still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. Be careful. In verse 14, he says, for we've become companions of the Messiah if we hold firmly until the end the reality we had at the start. I said to you a moment ago that verses 6 and 14 were directly connected, and they are. This is, this is not a verse that we memorize or give a great deal of discussion to when we're talking about eternal security which is just a fancy way of saying that when a person is saved, they're always saved, that no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck us from God's hand. We don't look at this verse ordinarily in that light, but we should. Look again at what is said here. For we have become companions of the Messiah if we hold firmly until the end the reality we had at the start. This is how you know, assuredly. This is where... Uh, some degree of certainty comes from resting in the courage of hope and conviction as mentioned in verse 6 and then persevering in that courage and that confidence and conviction in verse 
14, if we hold firmly until the end the reality we had at the start. Since the early days of walking with Jesus, and I, I came, became a Christian from virtually no Christian background with no preconceived notions or understanding of anything, so I came kind of as that problem member who asks too many questions and pesters the pastor. I've looked back on those years. Now, I, my pastor probably hated to see me coming because I always had some boneheaded question that I wanted him to resolve for me on that day. But I can remember even in those days, hearing people in our rural church use the phrase, once saved, always saved. Now in principle, I agree with that. I believe that once a person is saved, there's nothing that can take their salvation away, but it always sound kind of, sounded kind of cheap and misleading, as though there was to be some transaction that unfolded at the beginning of our journey with Jesus with little care or concern about what happened from that point forward, and nothing could be further from what is described in the New Testament. In fact, we tend to evaluate a person's sincerity in their relationship with Jesus by the way they begin their race. And we assign value to things like answering an invitation or walking down an aisle or praying a prayer or filling out a card or raising a hand. And those things aren't necessarily bad things, although they can be used in manipulative and kind of bad ways. They are not in and of themselves negatives. The way a person begins the race tends to be our gauge, our measure, especially if that person is particularly emotional or expressive in their profession of faith. Oh, he or she was moved and they cried or they wept a lot. There's something about the way they express themselves that really came off as quite sincere. But that's not the way the New Testament evaluation is made. In fact, in the New Testament, the way our sincerity is evaluated is not by the way we begin the race, but by the way we end the race. And because we get this backwards, sometimes we really don't know how to deal with some of Paul's statements where he says things like, I fear that I might somehow disqualify myself in this race of faith. He uses the language of disqualification, and that concerns us. We don't have categories for that. It's only at the end of the Apostle Paul's life, in the very last chapter, the Apostle Paul writes under the inspiration of God's Spirit in the New Testament, 2 Timothy chapter 4, that Paul speaks with absolute certainty. And here's what he says. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. It's not the way that an individual starts the race, although the way we begin is essential. The only way to begin is in the gospel. But the way a person finishes the race becomes the, the measure for their sincerity, in some ways a source of their assurance. Now that doesn't mean that we don't fail or falter along the way. God in heaven knows that I do often. I'll fail and falter before the day's over, if not before this sermon itself is finished. But there is a holding fast to the hope and confidence of our conviction, the courage of our conviction, the knowledge that my salvation is not built upon the foundation of my ability to remain faithful. My salvation is built upon the reality of Christ's faithfulness. And there is no contingency there. His faithfulness is finished on my behalf. His blood is it. When the Father looks upon my life on my best day or my worst day, he doesn't see my best day. He doesn't see my worst day. 
Rather, he sees the perfect righteousness of his only begotten son. Therein lies assurance. Just practically and apart from this passage, I'll tell you one of the things that brings me more assurance, perhaps, than anything else, practically. When I mess it up, and sometimes I can really mess it up, my first thought in the moment is to run to Jesus. And even in my failure, I'm encouraged by that, right? Because it's spinal. It's not like I'm thinking, oh, I need to go to Jesus and get this taken care of. It's, oh, no, i got to get to Jesus. I think that encourages and revives my soul. There are other means of assurance. Spurgeon used to say one of the, the, the most certain assurances of my salvation is the fact that hearing the gospel preached after all these years still warms my soul. There's a certain delight that we take in the gospel as a believer that grants assurance for us. I think it's important, however, that we get this right again that we begin evaluating the truthfulness or the sincerity of our salvation, not by the beginning, but by the end. Because there are far too many people who are testifying to some experience of renouncing or deconstructing their Christian faith, when theologically it's an impossibility. There are no former Christians, just those who never were true Christians in the first place. We've become companions of Christ if we hold firmly until the end the reality we had at the start. Verse 15. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion. We could back up and read the whole chapter again. And I'm still not sure that we could get the full force of the urgency that's being communicated here. Today, like, like, like in this congregation, right here, right here in this body, there are in all likelihood individuals who will come to a place in their life when they defect. You just look around and, and, and think not about the faces that you see, but the faces you don't see. And the fact that you do not see them began at some juncture in their life when they made the decision to revert back to their former way of life. They were perhaps in a worship service, in a Bible study, giving some thought to the things of Christ, trying to determine in themselves the direction for their life. And rather than giving consideration with depth, meditating on Christ, persevering in Christ, rather than running to Jesus for the salvation of their soul, for rescue in that moment, they made the conscious decision to revert back to former ways. Not that they lost what they had, but that they never had it in the first place. They were perhaps through the work of God's Spirit inching closer and closer to a place of true repentance and sorrow over their sin, a place of understanding the power of the gospel and the true beauty of, of Jesus. But having heard his voice, they hardened their hearts against him. And they've come under the very judgment described in the passage that's before us. You may be here this morning at that crossroads, at that juncture in your life, determining which direction you will go. And the word of God for you this morning is that if you hear his voice today, not tomorrow, not next week, not a month from now, not once you've sown your oats, not when you've come to a place in your life where you're ready to do the things of God, turn away from the things of this world, but today is the only day that you are promised. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. 
Verse, six, verse 16 says, for who heard and rebelled, wasn't it really all who came out of Egypt under Moses? Who was he provoked with for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And who did he swear that they would not enter his rest, if not those who disobeyed? In, in other words, it was those who were close, those who were a part of that band of people identifying themselves as the people of God. That's who fell in the wilderness. The disobedient, as they're described here. But a further diagnos diagnosis of their state is provided in verse 19. Listen carefully to what's said here. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. N note that here the example is leveraged not to say that they did not enter because of their disobedience. It, it, doesn't, say, it doesn't read that way, right? Rather that they did not enter because of unbelief. We're back to Jesus is better than Moses. Your obedience cannot guarantee your entrance, but faith in Christ does. Here they did not enter because of unbelief. There are a couple of things that we might draw from this observation. One is that unbelief produces disobedience. Wherever there's disobedience or sin in our life, it's always the product of unbelief and absence of faith on our part. The reason we do stupid things is because for at least that glimmer of time, we convince ourselves that we know what's best for us even more so than God. And so we usurp his authority over our life in an absence of faith, and we do stupid things that usually get us in a great deal of trouble. But this is, again, not the same as saying that obedience equals belief. In fact, the whole point of Hebrews 3 is to say that not only is Jesus better than Moses, but that faith beats obedience. Now, this is the way we convince ourselves that we're right with God, because we have a certain system of values. We, we, we practice certain commands. We do certain things. We observe certain religious practices in our experience, in our, in our personal life. And we believe that somehow that wins or merits the favor of God toward us, but nothing again could be further from the truth. The only hope we have of entering the rest that has been afforded us is the shed blood of Jesus. In other words, what Jesus has done for us, Moses could not do. There is a rest that's offered, a rest that's afforded us. Remember again, Moses as synonymous with obedience to the commands of God as given through Moses. And then the promise of, of rest. Who does Jesus have in view when he offers the invitation, come unto me all who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. This is not Jesus showing up at the end of a 50 hour work week saying, come away for some vacation, some R&R &R for the weekend. This is not the promise of physical rest. The reality is there's very little physical rest for us in the here and now, and there may not be until the sweet by and by. There's the promise here of a spiritual rest. For those who have felt the weight, the heavy weight, and the sense of obligation that could come not only with the commands of Moses, but with so many other attached commandments, with whatever your self-styled religion is, 
the weight that comes with that, the heaviness of that responsibility, the weight of the notion that I must do certain things in order to win the favor of God, that I must run a certain race, that I must walk a certain walk, that I must do A, B, and C in order to win the favor of God, that's heavy for those who have embraced that. And to those who are weary and heavy laden under the weight of that obligation, Jesus says, come unto me and I will give you rest. I'll tell you, I think even more than that, for those who have cast off restraint, who have set aside any system of values, any sense of obligation, and who are running after the fleeting, passing pleasures of this world, seeking to find fulfillment and satisfaction, you are running with your tongues wagging like an old dog. And to you, to you, Jesus says likewise, Come unto me, and I will give you rest. The invitation of our passage could not be clearer. Today, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion, but come to Jesus. I, I see so many people, and I, I, you know, I came into the first service thinking, I'm going to really have a hard time saying what's in my heart. And then I got to the second service and I thought, I'm really going to struggle to say what's in my heart. And then I was getting ready to come into this service and I thought, there's no way I'm going to be able to really say with, with the kind of force that this passage intends what's in my heart. I, I see so many people chasing after so many things, convinced that that will make them happy or fulfill them or save them in some kind of way. We need bread for our belly. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And we need water for parched lips. And Jesus says, I am the living water. And we hope to see life brought from the death that is our experience here. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Listen. Listen, listen for the still, small voice of the Spirit. Hear the good shepherd call. Come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come, come, come. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth. Thank you for the opportunity to look at this passage and its beautiful consideration of who Jesus is and his superiority over all things. God, I, I, I don't have any expectation that what I feel in my heart it has been well communicated to your people. The weight of this passage and the, the, the freedom, the liberty that comes with grasping it in its fullness. God, I pray that you would impart the truth of this passage into the hearts of your people with great power that you would speak in that mysterious way, calling the names of your people away from the world around us, away from a former way of life and into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that for those who are here, perhaps those who have lived for decades in close proximity to the work of God, who have maybe even watched what you've done in awe, 
but have yet themselves to be touched by the saving power of the gospel, would you save them now? God, I pray that you would grant the gift of faith that many would believe. God, I pray for the church. We're so apathetic and pitiful at times. We tend to get lazy in the work of the kingdom. God, I pray that you would shake us, that we would hear ringing in our ears this note from Psalm 95, today, today, today. God, I pray that you'd give us a sensitivity to the work of your Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us, not just with regards to salvation, but the call of the Great Commission on our life, the call to righteousness and obedience, the call to faithfulness within our families. God, I, I pray that you would speak with crystal clarity to your people, God, that we not be named among those who rebel against you in the hour of trial. God, keep us faithful. Lord, I pray that your will would be done here in the moments ahead and that all the glory and honor and praise would be paid to Christ and to Christ alone. In Jesus' name and for his glory, amen. Would you join me in standing? We're going to have a time of invitation and commitment, a time when we invite you to respond to the word of God, to what we've read in the passage. If you've read along in this passage, listened to the sermon as it was preached, and determine there's certain areas of my life that need to be addressed, certain, certain things that need to be done. There's, there's something, there's repentance that needs to happen in my experience. And there's a way that I or our pastors could help counsel or encourage in that area. This is a time when you have the opportunity to react to that, to respond to that. This morning, if you would humbly bow, confess the Lordship of Jesus for the salvation of your soul, the invitation is for you. Maybe you've believed, but you've never been faithful in baptism as an expression of your faith in Jesus. The invitation is for you. Maybe God's calling you into the fellowship of this body. We would love to have you as a part of our faith family at Longview Point. This invitation time is for you. There may be countless other ways that the Lord is stirring in your heart. What you're certain of, if nothing else, is that he's called your name. If that's you, and we could counsel, help, or encourage in any way, this invitation is for you. Charles is gonna lead us, we're gonna to sing together, but the most important thing that'll happen in these next moments is what the Spirit of God does with the Word of God in the hearts of the people of God. Let's sing as the Lord leads, you come. There is love that came for us humble to a sinner's cross you broke my shame and sinfulness you rose again victorious faithfulness None can deny Through the storm And through the fire There is truth That sets me free Jesus Christ Who lives in me You are stronger 
You are stronger, sin is broken, you have saved me. It is written, Christ is risen, Jesus, you are Lord of save the lost you paid it all upon the cross you are stronger you are stronger sin is broken you have saved me it is written Christ is risen Jesus you our Lord of all. So let your name be lifted higher, be lifted higher, be lifted higher. So let your name be lifted higher, be lifted higher be lifted higher so let your name be lifted higher be lifted higher be lifted higher so let your name be lifted higher be lifted higher be lifted higher you are stronger you are stronger sin is broken you have saved me it is written christ is risen jesus you are lord of all welcome to the point here's what's going on The Senior Adult Monthly Fellowship Luncheon will be held this Tuesday, July 13th at 11 a.m. in the lobby. All senior adults are invited to bring a friend and join us. Lunch will be provided. Monetary donations are now being accepted for Dress a Child. Each year, Longview Point partners with the Interfaith Council to provide children in need from our community with a backpack and necessary items for school. Donations can be given online, through our app, or in person in the contribution boxes, and must be designated Dress a Child. A weekly prayer meeting is open to everyone on Thursday mornings from 9 to 11 a.m. in room 208 from now through the month of July. Contact Dara Mackingville for more information. A new ministry is coming soon for adults 21 and older to volunteer at the Juvenile Detention Center. For more information about how you can serve in this ministry, contact Pastor Jason or Pastor Trey. To limit contact, offering plates will not be passed during the service. However, there are three easy ways to give. Tithes and offerings can be given in person by placing them in the contribution boxes at the back of the worship center or in the drop boxes near the elevator or on the missions wall. You can also give with just a few clicks by visiting our website at longviewpoint.org 
or through the Longview Point mobile app. That's what's going on at the Point. Let's expand His kingdom across the street and around the world. Jesus is who I need today. Nothing and no one else. Jesus is who you need today. Nothing and no one else. The invitation's not over. If you hear the voice of the Lord calling and stirring in your heart today, do something about it. Call a pastor. All our cards are out on that welcome desk. Grab one before you leave. Our cell phone numbers are on there. The invitation's not over when you leave this place. It's all day. It's today is the day. Hey, thank you for coming and hearing the word of the Lord preached. I hope that God will lock what you've heard today in your mind and in your heart, and you'll be able to take it with you that Jesus is better than anything else this world has to offer. Hey, you saw a video just then of some things going on in the life of our church. Those same things are in your bulletin, and you can read about them there. And I want to point out just a couple of things. Senior adult luncheon this Tuesday. There is no age given, so I'm going to let you decide if you're a senior or not. There is evangelism training on Saturday where you'll get some great tools for being able to share the good news of Jesus Christ, and then we're going to go and practice in our own community, the mission field where God has placed us. So be a part of that. Other ways that you can connect in serving our community, the Dress a Child and the Life Song Adoption are there as well. And hey, I just want to draw your attention to our prayer focus. We are praying this month for Chris and Christy Wallace, church planters in Bismarck, North Dakota. We have a team there right now. And God's at work in the Dakotas in some really special ways. I was in South Dakota last week working with another church plant. I was talking with our pastor Trey earlier this morning and mapping out how God has been at work in churches that are planting churches that are planting churches to the fourth generation. And it is exciting to see how God's at work up there. There are missions at the missions wall that you can get some prayer cards for the Wallaces. That handsome family, grab that and you can stick it in your Bible as a reminder to pray for the Wallaces there serving in North Dakota. Hey, if you are our guest today, I'd ask that you would tear off that perforated section on the right side and share with us as much information as you're comfortable sharing so that we can connect with you in that way. Also, if there are prayer requests, we as a church staff count it a privilege to pray for you and with you. And on that note, let's pray as we go out this morning. Heavenly Father, you're so good. We are so grateful for a Savior. We're so thankful for a cross. We're so thankful for an empty tomb. Let us hold fast to Jesus. Help us to hold fast to you as you hold on to us, Father. Show us that nothing is better, nothing is superior, nothing is preeminent other than Christ Jesus in our lives. Lord, help that be true for each one of us. Lord, we love you. And may we go with your good news on our lips today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.